0: Those who ascribe to the great powers view of history may interpret the Russia-Ukraine war as a clash of political cultures, part of a wider geopolitical game. They may go so far as to suggest that such a civilizational conflict was inevitable, but this interpretation ignores the agency of individuals, groups and nations in making decisions and in some way absolves them of the guilt for the crimes that have been committed on an unimaginable scale against real individuals. This macro political interpretation also skirts over the illegality and corruption at the heart of Putin's system of governance, the vertical power structure, rampant nepotism, the lack of checks and balances, rule of law, and an independent judiciary, which are just as important in explaining how we got to this dangerous tipping point in history. Welcome to the Silicon Curtain podcast. Please like and subscribe if you like the content we produce. Our materials are now being made available on popular podcasting platforms as well, such as Spotify and Apple podcasts. Today, I'm joined with Maria Popova, uh, who is the Jean Monnet Chair and Associate Professor of Political Science at McGill University in Montreal. She holds a BA in Spanish Literature and Government from Dartmouth College and a PhD in Government from Harvard University. She has lived and conducted research across Eastern Europe and Eurasia and its various regime incarnations, from growing up in the Balkans before 1989, through interviewing judges and lawyers in Russia and Ukraine for her dissertation research in the 2000s, to her current attempt to disentangle real from fake anti-corruption efforts in Bulgaria, Romania, and Ukraine. This, of course, is the ideal background to explore the road to war that Putin has taken. So welcome to the channel.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: And I have to start off with with probably an impossible question, um, but the big question uh, about this so-called inevitability of war? I mean, do you think this is inevitable? Uh, and and if, if it wasn't inevitable, uh, then who is culpable really for the crisis?
1: It's a really good question. And um, I wouldn't say that anything is inevitable. Inevitable, I feel, is a really strong way of putting it. But uh, I would argue that this war became increasingly likely over the last 30 years, and especially quite likely since uh, 2014 when Russia first uh, crossed this line into military aggression uh, against Ukraine and more or less got away with it. Uh, so 2014 really hastened things. But I would say that the, the root of, uh, of this war is really the way in which the Soviet Union collapsed you have in uh, 1991, we had this idea that the Soviet Union just disbanded and uh, Russia willingly let go of um, all of its um, colonies within uh, the the Soviet Union and that was the end of it. However, uh, now that uh, we look back uh, on the uh, on the way in which the Soviet Union disintegrated in ninety one, we see that there was a significant um, difference in how uh, Russia viewed the disintegration and how the other Soviet republics viewed the disintegration. The Ukrainian um, leader at the time, who signed the Beloveia Accords, disintegrating the Soviet Union, Leonid Kavchuk, uh, said that he perceived this as a civilized divorce, the end of the relationship between uh, the different uh, Soviet republics. However, it seems that Russia and Yeltsin saw this not so much as a divorce, but as a rewriting of the vows in the form of uh, the Commonwealth of Independent States. So there was an in, uh, an expectation in Russia uh, that they will continue kind of setting the tone Uh, For the region, they would continue uh, having a lot of influence over the former Soviet republics and this uh, misunderstanding in the beginning of the 90s really sets the tone uh, for the development of the relationships between uh, the former Soviet republics and Russia over time, and what we see in these 30 years. Uh, Is Ukraine growing increasingly attached to its independence and uh, gradually figuring out that the direction that it wants to take is a pro-European and um, increasingly democratic uh, direction? Whereas we know, of course, that Russia uh, went... Uh, from an attempt to build a democracy in the early nineties that sort of quickly failed and has been on on an autocratization course uh, for the last 20 years. So this clash uh, over time uh, accentuates and becomes more and more uh, pronounced. And we see that the more uh, Russia wanted to shorten this distance between itself and Ukraine, the more Ukraine wanted to pull away. And the more Ukraine wanted to pull away, the more Russia escalated the methods with which it wanted to keep Ukraine uh, in its sphere of influence. So what we see is that after 2014, things come to a head really, and, uh, and Russia sees that it is possible to take parts of Ukraine, uh, and reintegrate them, so to speak, this way. And uh, and we have uh, by this year um, Putin calculating that maybe he could uh, take all of Ukraine and it would be easy and quick and um, the international community will ultimately accept it. And this was really the huge miscalculation that he made, which we all know about.
0: And of course, um, you know, some people, as as I said in the introduction, um, view this as an inevitable clash between civilizations, between great powers and so on. But that is to impose a very sort of, uh, you know, win-lose scenario, isn't it? It's to dis- discount the idea that there could have been some kind of cooperation, some middle ground or a win-win scenario. Um, and it wasn't inevitable, really, was it, that Ukraine would pull so far away from that relationship with Russia. Uh, And in fact, at the start, they didn't seek to completely divorce. Um, That's happened over time as perhaps Russia's unreasonable behavior has pushed them away.
1: Right, so I think what the what the great power geopolitical uh, lens misses here is the role of domestic politics, both in Russia and in Ukraine, that is really, I think, the driver of this process, much more so than some qu- kind of sphere of influence. And the domestic process on the Ukrainian side is a process in which uh, Ukraine gradually developed uh, a democratic regime that was not a given. It might not have happened. It could have failed several times over the course of the last 30 years. You know, imagine, uh, let's say that in 2004, during the Orange Revolution, uh, imagine that that revolution failed uh, and uh, Yanukovych uh, became president uh, right then and there and uh, started a process of autocratization and became another Putin or another Lukashenko, then I think uh, it would have been much easier for uh, an authoritarian Ukraine to find uh, a common ground when an authoritarian Russia um, and, and things may have uh, been sort of a clash may have been avoided that way. Uh, however, Over time, Ukraine did develop into a democratic state, not because of um, any great power politics, but because of domestic reasons, because its civil society grew stronger. Um, The competition uh, between different constituencies within Ukraine uh, sort of uh, consolidated political competition to a point where Ukrainian citizens started taking for granted that it, that a Ukrainian president cannot be um, become uh, an authoritarian leader uh, will lose if uh, they tried uh, to consolidate an authoritarian regime. So over time, um, as Ukraine democratizes, it also becomes harder for Russia to keep it um, in in its sphere of influence to keep it, not only geopolitically within its sphere of influence, but to keep it compliant with what Russia saw as important uh, to its own domestic politics. So in other words, Russia interfered in um, in Ukrainian domestic affairs, not just about uh, Ukraine's foreign policy course, it interfered and uh, expressed strong opinions and pushed on all sorts of issues, language policies, um, economic policies that the country is going to pursue, um, historical memory policies. Um, And the more Russia interfered, the more uh, Ukraine uh, pulled away uh, because it saw this interference as unacceptable, uh, given its own uh, domestic uh, pressures to uh, to come up with uh, with a policy that was acceptable to all parts of Ukrainian society. So what we see is that over time, as Russia becomes less and less able to influence Ukrainian domestic policies, its uh, methods that it uses start escalating. They go from uh, using uh, diplomatic pressure, using economic uh, pressure through energy blackmail, uh, threatening um, border disputes as happened, uh, for example, in in 2003 with the Tuzla. island uh, incident, These all of these methods escalate over time, and they come to a head in 2014 when uh, in response to a largely domestic Ukrainian affair, something that Russia should not have had a particular, I mean, sure, it could have had an opinion about which uh, president uh, it wanted to rule Ukraine, but certainly had no uh, business interfering militarily to determine the outcome of a domestic uh, Ukrainian affair, we have in 2014 outright aggression, uh, military aggression by Russia in order to try to change Ukraine's course. And that was a major miscalculation too, because of course, by uh, taking Crimea uh, from Ukraine, by opening up a front in Donbas, and removing part of Donbas from Ukrainian control, Russia removed the most pro-Russian uh, parts of Ukraine. It that single-handedly shifted sort of the median voter in Ukraine towards a more Ukrainian position uh, that Russia liked even less. So in a way 2014 was a very serious miscalculation the russian uh basically the russians basically shot themselves in the foot with this decision um so so that really escalates this dynamic of of the two countries being on very divergent trajectories
0: and of course in 20 2022- and that is another massive mis- miscalculation isn't it their belief that uh, they had enough paid agents they had enough uh, corrupt bought politicians in the administration the army um, you know local councils and so on and the probably incorrect intelligence they were getting and their complete lack of understanding about ukrainian identity uh, and the very reaction they brought about since 2014, um, they just completely ignored the fact that they had pushed that society away, um, and to some extent, um, I don't want to use the word sort of radicalized there because that you know makes it sound like um, extreme nationalism a factor, and, and I, I don't happen to believe it is at all. Um, but um, certainly, they they pushed Ukraine closer to the West, and they pushed Ukraine. Ukrainians to look deeper into their history, I think, didn't they? And try to rediscover an alternative identity from the one that Russian propaganda or historical myths um, tended to, to expound?
1: Absolutely. I mean, 2022 was was a huge miscalculation for many reasons. I mean, partly because um the Putin regime is is at this point so such a personalistic uh, dictatorship that it was very difficult to have honest intelligence uh, brought to the top. Um, honest intelligence, which is going to uh, contradict the assumptions held at the top, uh, that's one reason. But also, I think a major reason of this miscalculation was sort of the the narrative that developed within Russia uh, that. All the pro-democracy movements in the former Soviet space were not driven by local actors, but were engineered by the West. Uh, The color revolutions as uh, US-backed movements was such a strong narrative that it seems the Russian uh, elites believed themselves. And the the thing is that if you believe this narrative, that uh, Euromaidan in 2013 14 was not uh, Ukrainians uh, organizing through civil society to uh, protest and eventually, because the regime used uh, uh, force um, to really stand up against uh, an authoritarian leaning uh, regime and uh, the collapse of this regime under enormous domestic pressure, if you don't see Euromaidan this way, but you see it as some sort of conspiracy uh, by the US where uh, the Ukrainians are just puppets in this conspiracy and they were driven uh, by the US, uh, then it is much easier, to think uh, that all you need to do, remove the puppeteers at the top and the Ukrainian uh, population will accept, uh, will see the light, will accept uh, uh, your leadership uh, or would even uh, think that uh, they're being liberated uh, by Russia from these US overlords. So uh, the fact that, that they were not greeted by liberators, in fact, that Ukrainian society kind of stood up as one to try to defend uh, their country from this invasion is uh, very much a um, evidence that there is that this narrative about the US backed uh, coup was really a, a weak and superficial conspiracy with no Uh, backing in reality, uh, Mm. that it was in fact very much that Ukrainian society uh, saw this interference and push by Russia uh, as um, unacceptable, and it moved towards um, an understanding over the years that maybe it will not be easy to have sort of a... um, a balanced relationship where Ukraine is in the middle and uh, between Russia and Europe and uh, kind of uh, on good terms with both. Increasingly, Ukrainian society saw that uh, for Russia, this is not an acceptable situation. What Russia wants is Ukraine squarely uh, subservient to Russia, a, a vassal state, if you will. And if you're not okay with this, your only option then is to go full on into the European direction because the middle is just not an option. And uh, it took some years for Ukrainian society to come to this realization. I think the uh, the historic... Uh, you know, the entangling of uh, histories between Russia and Ukraine is the reason why Ukrainian society didn't immediately see that that's what that's the situation they're in. Uh, but over time, Russia made it increasingly clear that Ukraine will have to choose a side. And if it chooses the Russia side, it chooses um to basically give up its sovereignty and independence and become a vassal state. And if it wants to continue uh, building on a a democratic regime and an independent one, it will need to go in the European direction. And um, in 2022, uh, we see a moment in which Ukrainian society is now fully united behind this uh, goal, Um, sort of, upwards of 85, 95% uh, of Ukrainian society has chosen that goal.
0: And I've spoken now to sort of dozens of Ukrainians, many of whom uh, were involved in Euromaidan the revolution of dignity. um, And they've described the chaos and the complexity of those protests. The fact that you had hundreds of thousands of people on the streets, The almost, I wouldn't call it infrastructure, but the civil support required the soup kitchens, the clothes, the supplies. The government was in no position to organize that way. The only way to achieve that was for hundreds of groups to self-organize, to enable those protests to happen. Now, given those personal testimonies, which I find compelling, how do you explain the fact that this CIA-backed coup narrative um, which I do, you know, I do think Putin believes it to this day. Why has that still got so much traction on the hard left and indeed the hard right in the US and the UK and across Europe?
1: It's a very good question. And and honestly, uh, it's a little baffling for me why this is such a uh, this is a conspiracy that just won't die, and uh, given the overwhelming evidence against it, uh, the, some of the main, you know, um, pieces of evidence, supposed evidence that this conspiracy has on its side, are really very, very superficial. Things like um, the Victoria Newland uh, having a conversation about who the next. Um, who will be in in the Ukrainian government next? Well, the uh, the u s. Uh, was watching what is happening. Having this conversation in no way means uh, that the u s. is directing the conversation. It's simply um it's simply, collecting information of what it looks like, where things are potentially going. Uh, They obviously had conversations with the government as well, not just with the opposition. Uh, They were concerned about instability in Ukraine as they're concerned about instability in in many other countries. Um, I think the the persistence of the conspiracy comes uh, from the fact that certain segments of uh, of the left and the right in, in, um, in the US are just really overestimating the ability of the US to control things everywhere around the world. It's an inability to see that the US is not a kingmaker all over the world. A lot of things happen despite US efforts uh, to influence events. Um, so so it's it's some sort of belief in the omnipotence of uh, of the US and of the CIA. Um, and it also, I think, comes from the fact that, um, you know, it, it's a complicated it was a complicated uh, situation. Not a lot of people have deep inside knowledge of Ukrainian politics uh, that would allow them to understand uh, that it is impossible to mobilize uh, hundreds of thousands of people to protest over, uh, two and a half months, um,
0: in the cold, in the winter, (laughs) you know,
1: a bunch of CIA agents, um, that really doesn't work. Um, also, you know, um, lack of knowledge about, uh, the fact that Ukrainian civil society, um, was, on a trajectory towards self-organization, not only in 2014, but since the Orange Revolution, that precedent uh, was very important. The fact that in 2005, they managed to organize a similar type of protest with uh, a tent city, with soup kitchens, with people uh, protesting around the clock. And that worked, Uh, that it did trigger a um, running of another round of this fraudulent election, that was a tremendously empowering uh, moment for Ukrainian civil society. Ukrainian civil society understood that if they're organized well enough, if they have their logistics right, uh, they can actually make a difference. And uh, when uh, 2013 happened, it started as a very small protest uh, that uh, that was in response to uh, Yanukovych uh, backing down and uh, sort of reneging on signing uh, this association agreement with the EU. Uh, that was a small protest, but what made it really uh, explode was that the uh, police used force against uh, the protesters, and and that led to more and more people uh, sort of thinking, well, civil society will not allow this regime to suppress protest. We have a right to protest, we will protest. And as a, as a result, that really uh, made the protest way, way, way bigger. And it kind of changed uh, the dynamics of it. Um, and you know, the regime simply miscalculated how, how they could uh, respond to this. Um, they miscalculated their response, and that led to their ultimate crumbling.
0: And it's an interesting feature of conspiratorial thinking, isn't it? On the one hand, the same people will berate the U.S. for failing to put a plan in place in Iraq, and installing you know, stable democratic government there, or or even any kind of infrastructure, um, and bringing chaos in that country. And yet they will bestow on the US almost omnipotent powers to manipulate and control what is clearly a complex, chaotic, organic process, bottom-up process that's happening in Ukraine.
1: Exactly. It, it really is a, a, a full-blown overestimation of the Uh, of the capabilities of the U.S., but also I think it is um, a misunderstanding of the U.S.'s interests uh, in Ukraine. I mean, there's reason to believe that the U.S. is somehow a big fan of Ukrainian nationalists. Like, why why would that be the case? Uh, The U.S. is interested in stability in the region. It has always been, of course, we know from from the way in which the Soviet Union uh, disintegrated that the U.S. was very conservative. Um, They they were afraid of uh, nationalist uh, dynamics in the the Soviet republics. Uh, They were not out to weaken Russia and to destabilize it. So there's no reason to believe that what the U.S. wanted was uh, a more uh, nationalist, more Ukrainian Ukraine. Um, what, what happened in 2014 was that there was a uh, democratic opposition to a president that was becoming increasingly authoritarian. Which side would, uh, would the US um, favor? Of course, it would favor the democratic opposition. Uh, it has nothing to do with weakening Russia, uh, it had nothing to do with seeking a, a change of government. Uh, it was simply observing the the, the situation and at, also trying to keep it stable for as long as possible. I mean, that's part of why uh, there was discussion of who are going to be, uh, who's going to be in the next government, making sure that it's going to be mainstream politicians and not uh, fringe uh fringe actors which there was n- n- no danger of anyway but but that explains what uh what the US position there was and it certainly was about uh helping a democratic movement uh succeed and um while also keeping things stable as opposed to any goal of destabilizing or weakening Russia
0: mm-hmm. And of course, yes, the US was very slow to really recognize uh, Ukrainian independence and agency and was very concerned, actually, about that, um, you know, until it happened. Um, and it has to be remembered as well that Ukraine is is not unique, but very few ex-Soviet states um, went through that kind of political evolution, most reverted to uh, much more autocratic uh, modes of rule. And as a result many of their economies have remained uh, stagnant or moribund, really, um, over the last 30 years, or at least not achieved the kind of development that they could have done uh, under another mode of government. Um, I mean, the question I'd like to ask here really does relate back to Lukashenko, because, again, we see that in Belarus, there's a clear template of how Ukraine could go uh, and how that autocratic system of uh, sham elections, fakes and hybrid informational uh, sort of terror and propaganda could could take control of society combined with extreme corruption and all the other features we know about and and i think a lot of people forget that at one point lukashenko was was actually quite a um, I don't know whether this was really genuine or whether it was just a sort of uh, of puppet show, but he's extremely critical of Putin. And he also positioned himself as the protector of Belarusian independence from Russia. And Putin didn't seem to mind because it was an autocratic state next door. He probably thought that over time he would gain more leverage and influence, but he seems to be far less threatened by autocratic regimes. The same, perhaps, is true of Turkey. He's not making those threats against Turkey, which is a a sort of hybrid uh, autocracy as well, or or going in that direction. Um, He seems much more threatened by societies that are on an evolutionary path towards democracy.
1: Right, I mean, it is much easier for an, an autocrat to talk to and to negotiate with another autocrat Um, And Lukashenko over the years has has tried to kind of play um, both sides and the EU and Putin and and try to carve out some uh, path for uh, for himself and for Belarus that's in the middle. Of course, uh, he has had to make a lot of concessions uh, to Putin. And right now we could even say that Belarus has kind of. Given its sovereign ladder uh, to uh, Russia as it is hosting and and facilitating its war effort, um, so um, and, and that's precisely sort of the goal that uh, and the vision that uh, Putin had for Ukraine, a country uh, that will be available uh, to Russia for. Um, to influence and to run as sort of a vassal, uh, a vassal state, and and it is definitely the case that um, that the competitiveness of Ukraine's regime was a thorn, and um, this on the side of of Putin's Russia for for a while. I mean, partly because he saw this as. Uh, as competitive, as artificial competition run by the US, so to speak, but also partly because any competitive uh, regime is sort of less predictable. You may end up, and and that's what happened in Ukraine. You know, there was a revolving door of presidents. There was one, there were more pro-Russian presidents uh, who would then lose elections to more pro-European presidents. I, and over time, um. I think what Putin realized was that even the pro-Russian presidents of Ukraine were not pro-Russian enough for his liking uh, because they had to contend with the realities of a competitive regime. They had to contend with the fact that there was a significant portion of society uh, that was leaning pro-European and they had to also accommodate uh, their uh, positions. So they couldn't take, even if they were elected on a pro-Russian ticket, uh, they really could not uh, go all in uh, towards Russia because they had to think about their re-election chances. And, and this is the way in which, over time, uh, political competition moved Ukraine away from, uh, from Russia and increasingly towards a pro-European path.
0: And of course, Ukrainian politicians existed within a media space that wasn't controlled in the way that Russian media is controlled. It's not to say there aren't, uh, uh, you know, dissonant voices within Russia, but there's a kind of almost a puppet show, isn't there, where certain opposition opinions are allowed, some are tolerated, some are fully oppositional, but they're put in a kind of playpen. Where they can't do any damage, where they have no ability to have actions, whereas in Ukraine, the evolution of the press is a far more dangerous and unpredictable element.
1: Absolutely, and and that was the case, you know, going back to the '90s, and and that's where the divergence between Russia and Ukraine started, because Russia had a very competitive. Uh, and diverse media space in the 90s, Uh, but gradually um, Putin managed to impose a straitjacket and and to sort of bring all the oligarchs who are usually uh, behind the different media outlets, bring them all in line um, and and make it clear to them that if, uh, if they don't actually pledge allegiance to the regime and to the state, uh, their position as oligarchs can very quickly be taken away. Uh, what happened in Ukraine was that the Ukrainian state uh, was never uh, strong enough to do anything like that. So they gradually accepted that there will be competition of different uh, oligarchic interests, but they also were different political interests representing uh, not only um, Oligarchic economic interests, but also constituencies within Ukrainian society and um, the the closest sort of that that Ukraine was to uh, autocratization was indeed under the two years of Yanukovych's uh, regime in in, uh, Yanukovych's presidency between 2010 and 2012 when uh we know that he uh tried to systematically dismantle some of the uh some of the constraints on executive power um he had uh the constitutional court uh take a decision uh that reversed the parliamentary presidential uh switch that had happened um at the end of the orange revolution um he tried to put well, he did put his main competitor, political competitor, Yulia Tymoshenko, in prison on basically a politicized. Uh, um, a lot of other politicians had to flee the country or were imprisoned as well. Uh, so this is the autocratization that uh, that Ukrainian civil society emboldened by the orange revolution and by yushchenko's uh very sort of decentralized uh presidency weak presidency when political competition was was vibrant uh ukrainian civil society was very was taken aback by these autocratization steps there was the Lukashenko example uh, close by, the Russian example. This is not a road that Ukrainian civil society wanted to go down on. And that is why we saw the Euromaidan. Uh, in uh, the third year of Yanukovych's presidency. There was, it wasn't just about this uh, association agreement. It wasn't just about the beating up of protesters. It was a broader concern that this regime is heading on an authoritarian consolidation path. And it has to be stopped sooner rather than later before it's too late.
0: And um... You know, we've talked a lot about the progress that was made in civil society, resistance, and so on, the media, and even the plurality of political parties. A huge amount of progress is made. Slightly less progress, however, in the evolution of the judiciary and moving to more of an independent, uh, Western style uh, judicial system. Uh, and I know this is a key area that you've actually researched so could you describe a little bit the problem and and why the judicial system is such a tougher nut to crack than other parts of civil society
1: so the the problem with the uh with the ukrainian uh, judiciary over time has been that um that the judiciary was a rather weak uh institution in terms of um in terms of it's the way in which judges saw their role in society. Uh, basically, what, what you have is a professional role conception that emphasizes uh, subordination to political power. And as a result, uh, what happened over time was that as even though there was a lot of political competition um, at, uh, in the other branches, uh, different presidents' uh, competition in uh, in the legislature as well, uh, basically what happened was that every new incumbent would quickly um, in, come up with a point man for the judiciary and that point man for the judiciary would basically uh, set the tone for what the judiciary would be doing. So that's um, a recipe for for a judiciary that is politically subservient and is getting a lot of pressure uh, from politicians to basically um, be used as a tool against political opponents. That's why when uh, Timoshenko went on trial, there was very little doubt that she would be convicted uh, because uh, the idea was that if there was a way to stop her conviction, uh, that way would have been civil society pressure, not uh, a, a judge who is going to rule independently and and say that the charges uh, don't uh, meet the threshold necessary for conviction. So, so I think 2014 is a significant uh, watershed moment uh, for the judiciary as well. And it's a significant watershed moment because it is during your Maidan that civil society uh, turns its attention to the courts and and sees how crucial it actually is to have independent courts in order to have sustainable uh, democratic competition. one crucial thing that was evident in Euromaidan was that the government can use the courts to suppress protest, can imprison uh, protesters, harass them, uh, get at their organization. I mean, the the courts are an effective tool. And that drove home the point that uh, reforming the judiciary is really, really crucial. So what we see from 2014 onwards is a lot of reform of the judiciary, uh, these fundamental significant reforms. There were a lot of a lot of laws were uh, were passed that completely changed uh, the makeup of the judiciary, the way that it was institutionally set up. It brought the Ukrainian judiciary in line with best practices that were recommended by international um, institutions, such as the Venice Commission of the Council of Europe. Um, So a lot was done on the institutional basis. Now, what we saw, though, in those eight years is that it's one thing to change the institutional basis, but there is some some time is needed for professional role conceptions to start catching up, for uh, judges to actually realize that their goal in society is to uphold the law and uh, to make sure that they inculcate impartiality and independence in the judges that are kind of coming uh, from the lower ranks up the higher ranks. And and it seems that that norm change is uh, something that's tougher to do. Um, But I think 2022 will be a watershed moment for the normative change as well, because now the institutional basis is there for uh, an independent judiciary. And given how uh, Ukrainian society has now realized that having um, a disciplined state is crucial to withstanding uh, Russian aggression, having a state that's constrained um, in the sense that uh, the the funds are being spent as they should be. They're not being squandered through corruption channels. I think there is uh, a lot of additional um, sort of realization of how crucial uh, that is, which is going to drive the, the, the point home for uh, the judiciary as well, uh, that there will have to be a change in in the way they see their role. Um, And so I'm fairly optimistic that this will be a a next stage uh, for the development of an independent uh, judiciary in Ukraine, which is where the norms are going to start catching up with the institutions.
0: And isn't it also uh, that it must be a generational change in that you can't necessarily take that older generation of people who brought up in the Soviet system and expect them to change their behaviours and perceptions. You almost have to have an entirely new generation uh, of people educated in a different way and and who have different experiences. Because I know, talking to um, Evgeny Fitchenko, that this is how the journalistic practice in Ukraine was uh, transformed. They literally pastured out, put out to pasture. Everybody brought up in the old system and they just started fresh. Is is that much more difficult to achieve in the judiciary?
1: Well, the generational changes is important as well. But I think at this point, um, that has happened in in the Ukrainian judiciary um, because uh most of the judges uh that are now on the bench are uh people who came of age in the 90s and later um so uh so it's not so much uh, a a communist legacy that has to be um that has to be replaced but it's the early post communist legacy the early years of uh competing oligarchic clans uh who controlled uh parts of the judiciary and were using it to compete with each other it is that sort of legacy that uh needs to be overcome and i think since uh since 2014 a lot of progress has been made um partly as a result of the institutional changes but partly as a result of the fact that there has been uh A whole sector of uh ngos and civic organizations that focus on monitoring what the judiciary does and how it behaves that push rule of law issues that uh try to educate the public about how important the rule of law is and independent uh how important an independent judiciary is i mean ukraine is is rather unique uh, in this regard, that uh, rule of law issues are really highly salient with the public. Okay. give you an illustration. Ukraine has uh, a couple of shows where uh, shows on TV shows, um, sort of like a, a documentary style, investigative journalism kind of style of shows that are devoted to uh, the judiciary. And to holding the judiciary accountable, um to um spreading the word about judges who are doing the right thing versus judges who are doing uh you know uh the old style uh corrupt networks uh kind of uh shtick. So so this is quite remarkable that the level of um education of the public on the issue of uh the importance of the rule of law is is quite significant in ukraine and i think uh it will uh push things in the right direction over time
0: and that was going to be my last question really was was um being a bit optimistic assuming that ukraine wins the current conflict assuming that russia's terroristic threats around dirty bombs nuclear etc come to nothing um let's look forward and it seems like there's a lot of reasons for positivity. It seems like there's a lot of evolutionary changes happening in civic society, the judiciary and so on. What do you think are the risks and where might they have setbacks? Um, because of course they're going through an extraordinary period of change, extraordinary pressures. And a lot at the moment is probably being bottled up. Um, what, are, what are the risks to, to, to progress in the post-war period?
1: I mean, I think one of the main uh, risks is that uh, there's going to be a lot of trauma in, in society um, as a result of the war. There's a lot of bottled up anger uh, right now. Uh, and um, one of the main challenges after the war would be how to deal with, uh, with portions of society that may have uh, collaborated with the occupiers, how to make sure that this is dealt with in a procedurally uh, sound way, uh, in a way uh, that is going to systematically rather than arbitrarily distinguish between collaborators and people who were really kind of in the wrong place at the wrong time and made a uh, a decision right there in the moment uh, that had to do with their own uh, safety and their family's safety. I think that will be a, a major uh, risk uh, because if Ukrainian, uh, if the Ukrainian state kind of mismanages that part of the post-war reconstruction, it could be um, a recipe for some, uh, you know, civil rights uh violations it, it may set back uh democratic progress a bit i mean it will be a very hard uh road to navigate but it's important to start thinking about it uh from now to make sure that it's done right
0: and fuel um, for russian propaganda as well because we have to assume that whatever happens you know the threat from russia the the hybrid warfare is going to carry on even if they lose on the battlefield so They'll leverage any of those civic issues
1: exactly. and and then I think the second risk is, given the the perennial threat that Ukraine will have to face from Russia, um, there will be a very strong sort of impetus for Ukraine to militarize as a society in order to you know to become fortress Ukraine uh, in order to protect itself. But that, of course, has, uh, also, implications for domestic politics and for how uh, you man- how you have a free and and uh, a free society that guarantees everybody's political and civil rights while also maintaining national security. Uh, I think they will they will have to also make sure that they get this balance uh, right, and this will be a challenge and something again to start thinking about right now.
0: Well, Maria, it's been absolutely fascinating talking to you. I think this topic I share with Ukrainians a deep fascination for the judiciary and that evolution of civil society. Um, and I, yeah, I really appreciate you spending so much time to explain these you know, incredibly complex issues and making them you know, so easy to understand. Thank you.
1: Thanks for having me. That was, it was a pleasure.